live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in downtown Chicago, this is Bug House! This isn't the only time we've been this polarized. That this country, because it is a democracy of some sort, has been polarized many times where ideologies are just slamming up against each other. And no one has a rat, they're so angry, they're so wrapped up in their own ideology, their own passion, their own anger, that there's no rational discourse going on. Now, I want to caution everybody, because I can also say that Facebook is a part of the problem, which is no different than saying you are part of the problem, because Facebook isn't Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook is us. We are the problem. A perfect example. Just hanging out, having a conversation. I make a random comment, a random observation, that Star Wars, the initial Star Wars, was made for 12-year-old boys. That's not that big a deal. I mean, I was 12 years old when it came out. So, of course, that's kind of what I'm going to think. This became not a debate, but an argument that got to, to, to epic proportions, to fuck you with a knife in your eye kind of shit <laughs> over Star Wars. This is where we're at as a society. Now, we have been here before. In 1911, we were in a similar place. And anarchists and free thinkers and radicals decided to have debates here in Chicago in Washington Square Park. They dubbed it Bug House Square, which is a pejorative for a mental hospital because they were insane. But they were only insane because they didn't fit the common man's perspective of how to fight and how to argue. And they stood on soap boxes, boxes that they had, that they actually transported chunks of soap in, and they argued about the issues of the day. In the 50s, it kind of waned, it kind of went away. You know, we had World War I, we had World War II. Studs Terkel noticed that in the 50s, we're in a similar, similar place. And with some folks in Chicago decided to reinvigorate the bug house debates. They still go on at the Newberry Library and in Washington Square Park, where they get on soapboxes and they debate the issues of the day. David and I realized that we need to do a show, because that's how you do things in, you know, 2018, 2017, 2018. You don't just go out and do debates. The fuck is that? You do a show in a bar with booze, because that makes the most sense. And thus, Bug House, with an exclamation point. I'm very insistent on the exclamation point. 
topic is, is, is pretty simple. In about, I think it, uh, and I don't know the, actually, because even though I do have the entire internet at my disposal, I did not look it up. But somewhere around the 80s, I'm thinking probably maybe late 70s, somebody coined the phrase politically correct. And political correctness at the time was about language. This was long before we decided certain words were hate speech. But what it is now encompassing is political correctness is about speech. It is about cultural appropriation. It is involved in social justice issues. And the question at hand, if you follow these things, Stephen Fry, you know Stephen Fry, right? Okay, Stephen Fry's comment was, I don't like political correctness because it doesn't work. Jordan Peterson, you know Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson says that it's regressive. So the question at hand is, is political correctness as sort of a, a concept progress or regress? And we will have Kerry Castor and David Kimmel argue that point. Or second. Oh, I want to go second. She's going to go second, David Kimmel. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Kimmel, political correctness, progress or regress. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, political correctness, politically correct, PC. This is a term, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember that? Remember that guy that saw that shit on the TV? Okay. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that it is a term used to refer to language that seems intended to give the least amount of offense especially when describing groups identified by external markers such as race, gender, culture, or sexual orientation. The term first appeared in Marxist-Leninist vocabulary following the Russian Revolution of 1917. At, a, at that time, it was used to describe adherence to the politics or the policies and principles of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So towing the party line. That's what political correctness was born from. Don't say anything that would upset the Kremlin or differ from what the oppressive government wanted you to say and think. PC, at its origin, was not progressive. It was stagnation. It was oppression. That's changed, of course, because language adapts with the times. But how much has it changed? And who is responsible for what gets changed? For example, the word queer used to mean strange or unusual, like if something was as queer as a $3 bill. But today, to say that I'm queer because I'm a straight man in his 30s who enjoys the movie from Justin to Kelly, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense, because I'm not queer. And that's not to say that queer people shouldn't enjoy that movie. All people should enjoy that movie. It is fucking brilliant. Another example, retard. According to Merriam-Webster, it means to delay or impede the development of, of progress, to slow up, especially by preventing or hindering advance or accomplishment. That's a transitive verb definition. The intransitive verb definition is to become delayed. Now we have to look up what transitive verbs and intransitive verbs are. But if I say to my boss after, 40, after arriving 45 minutes late to a weekly meeting that the rain retarded my commute to work and thus made me a retard, I'd be swiftly punished. <laughs> and I wasn't even insulting anyone. 
I didn't say that I was late because some retard was driving 20 in a 50. But even then, would that be an insult? Considered one, perhaps, but it's an accurate description. That person driving slow was the retard. He hindered my advancement. Okay, so let's be honest with ourselves. There is a difference between being politically correct and being hateful. I know we can't call Japanese people Jap, or we can't call a Japanese person a Jap, even though that phrase was printed in large block letters on the front pages of newspapers this month, 73 years ago. And I know we can't refer to a black person as colored. Not anymore. Too much negativity attached to it. And the N-word, well, duh. Even though that's been taken back, sort of, to a degree, by some black people. Those phrases are no longer PC. They're no longer okay to say. Using them is understandably racist, and the Sapir Warp hypothesis theorizes that using racist language incites racism. And I would argue that that is true. But do we group black people, but we do group black people into the larger category of people of color, POC. They're not colored people, they're people of color. So too are Mexicans, I'm sorry Latinos, as are Hispanics and Indians. India Indians, not Native Americans. But Native Americans are POC too. So to refer to these groups of people as POC is to be PC. But referring to my black friend Derek, and yes, I have a black friend whose name is Derek, as a person of color strips him of his black identity. It homogenizes him. Because his black experience is different than my Mexican friend Pablo's Mexican experience. And yes, I have a Mexican friend and his name is Pablo. Sometimes being PC can blur the lines and completely defeat the purpose of being politically correct. Does calling a Mexican Hispanic instead of accurately Latino offend all POCs? If so, why? Shouldn't it just offend that one Mexican or the Mexicans that heard it? There is also this acronym BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. That helps, sort of. It gets that word color away from the black people, which is good. But I'm also now not sure who we're talking about. In most cases, if a term like BIPOC comes up, we're talking about America's magnificently horrendous past of marginalizing and oppressing people who weren't white Christians. So does BIPOC include the Asian communities? And if so, are we talking about the Japanese, Korean, and Chinese? Just one of the three? Or are we including the Filipino people, Vietnamese? Because, one of the, because out of those groups, the Japanese and the Chinese got it worse. What with the internment camps and the railroad, railroad building, labor, and you know, all that. I'm just trying to be PC here. Political correctness is about being polite. Not sticking your foot in your mouth at the wrong time. Years ago, I used to work with a guy whose youngest kid had Down syndrome. One time in a casual meeting, we were joking about something dumb that our competitor did. And I said, yeah, that whole thing was pretty retarded. And the moment the words left my lips, I wanted them back. But Marty, the guy I was talking to, didn't flinch. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he was used to it. My saying it didn't disrupt the conversation or affect our relationship at all. So was I wrong to say the word? Who determines what is PC and what's not okay?
Some people balk after they refer to me as a Jew rather than refer to me as Jewish. It never bothers me. I don't think the term Jew is offensive. It's what I am, sort of. Like I identify, eh? <laughs> I identify as a non-denominational recovering Jew, not a non-denominational non recovering Jewish person because that would be a mouthful. But maybe there are Jews out there who don't like that I just call them Jews instead of Jewish people, or bankers or movie executives. <laughs> you see, that's where, that's where PC comes in, comes in handy. Political correctness is more about the intention than the language. In the weeks leading up to tonight's event, I was promoting the show, promoting the show, and specifically this, this bout with Carrie. And uh, I was saying things that weren't PC in my Facebook posts. And just today, Carrie posted on Facebook, I hope David Himmel doesn't wear his nice shirt tonight. I'd hate for him to get it dirty when I wipe the floor with him. <laughs> and she put in parentheses, shit talking is not, not PC, right? Like, so that's cool. And I responded, wipe the floor with me. That would be taking jobs away from Mexican custodial staff. <laughs> sound too PC to me. And then she responded, Lord, I intend to win this just because you desperately need someone to tell you to get some better jokes than this tired old garbage. And she's right. Those jokes or assumptions are tired old garbage. It's not politically correct to say that all of one group is a certain way. Generalized grouping like that is regressive. And there's really no way to make it funny in a Facebook comment thread. Pushing back on stereotypes and refining or redefining what's PC is what satire is for. It's what the TV show uh, Blackish does. I'll give you an example. Now, stereotyping, while not politically correct, does carry some truth with it. There are a lot of Mexicans in the custodial cleaning industry. A lot of POC drive cabs. Is it politically incorrect to say that the worst Lyft drivers are from the suburbs? <laughs> there is truth and human identity to these things, these labels. So let's talk about our president for a second. Should Trump have mocked the handicapped person the way he did? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Because yeah. that's what this fucking world is going to remember about that president. That, okay. So of, of course he shouldn't have done that. A candidate for president shouldn't mock anyone. And I'm talking to you, Hillary, you deplorable hack. And I know you're listening to this fucking podcast. <laughs> is Donald Trump retarded? Let's look at this closer. Is he, is he hindering progress? Is he lacking emotional development? Yeah, yeah, he is. You're right. Donald Trump is a full-blown retard. Now, I could call him something else, something more PC, but that would diminish the point. It can be an insult when used in, on the right person in the right way. Now, you can't do this with every PC insult. You can't say that your frugal boyfriend is cheap like a Jew, because not all Jews are cheap. Uh, sorry, Jewish people. Not all Jewish people are cheap. 
but all retarded people are slower and disabled to some degree. There are those who say that the, the reason people who, the, there are those who say the reason that people use curse words are because they're not smart enough to know the actual word they want to use. That, of course, is not true. If Don Hall's being a motherfucking asshole, I'm gonna call him a motherfucking asshole. If he's being a motherfucking asshole and I call him a real meanie, it doesn't quite carry the same weight or meaning, now does it? Context is what matters here. Political correctness today is attempting to remove context from language and box, and box in all the potential bad things with the actual bad things. That prevents us from having full, open, honest discussions about identity and politics. And not identity politics, because shut the fuck up. But I digress. That's for you, baby. <laughs> Motherfucking asshole. And since political correctness today is preventative, we could also say that it is a hindrance to progress. Therefore, political correctness, by dictionary definition, is 100% retarded. <laughs> and that leads us toward regression. Like regress to, say, 1917 Russia? which is probably just what that retard Trump means when he says, make America great again. Thank you. David Himmel. I can tell he was nervous about this particular debate because uh, David usually doesn't take these things very seriously. And he took that one seriously. That was researched. He used the dictionary and stuff? That's crazy talk. All right, for the flip side of the argument, ladies and gentlemen, Carrie Caster. closer to the mic. <laughs> All right, so I don't know about you guys, uh, but I really miss the good old days. You know, back before all this political correctness stuff took over, back when a man could just compliment his female employee on her magnificent pair of tits, and she should just smile and accept the compliment. Back when nobody would look at you askance for dropping the N-word in casual conversation, Back when those damn gay people stayed in the closet where they belonged and we didn't have to pretend like they existed. You know, back when we all agreed that white heterosexual men were the only people whose feelings any of us should give a fuck about. Yeah! <laughs> 
judge role after all. <laughs> all right, so what do you think? You guys want to go back to that? I'm looking out in this crowd, and I see, I see a fair number of, of people who are white men, probably heterosexual, and I also see an awful lot of people who are not. I'm only one out of the three. And you know, I gotta say, I don't wanna go back to that. I think that was a pretty shit time for a lot of people who weren't white, straight men. Not into it. So here's someone who is not a white, straight man. Uh, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you probably heard of him, he's a pretty famous guy. Once said that language is very powerful. Language does not just describe reality, language creates the reality it describes. And as David referenced, some early 20th century linguists thought that this was like literally true. There's a thing called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis um, that they believed meant that the language that you spoke and the way that you spoke literally defined and limited your cognition and how and what you were, po you were capable of thinking. It's also called, more correctly, linguistic relativity. I did go to college. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the research shows that the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, linguistic relativity, doesn't hold true in the strong form. It doesn't actually, the language that you speak does not actually limit your cognition. You can still experience a sensation or see a color even if you don't have a word to describe that. And in fact, humans are very good at coming up with new words to describe those things. When we find something that we don't have language for, we create language for it. But the research does show there's very good evidence to support the idea that the way we talk about things influences the way we think about them. If you take a room full of students and you tell them that girls are worse at math objectively than boys, that the science shows that girls are worse at math, the girls in that room will all tend to perform lower on the math assessments than the boys. If you tell them the opposite, if you tell them that girls outperform boys on math, the girls' confidence will shoot up and they will perform better. There's a pretty obvious parallel here to our society. If we as a society accept and normalize language that suggests that people who are not white, not male, not heterosexual, are lesser than, uh, have less societal value, than those straight white men, then we as a society will tend to function in a way that upholds that idea. People who are against political correctness, the anti-PC people, tend to treat political correctness like it's a weapon. They claim that the PC brigade is out here, we're trying to take away their language, their free speech, and they are the heroic defenders, right, of free thinking and straight shooting. They use that fight over political correctness as a cudgel to draw attention away from the very real problems 
of disenfranchisement, discrimination, and inequality that face our society, and our language, the way we talk about people, influences the way that we react to people and the way that we treat people. Political correctness isn't a weapon, it's a push to disarm language and prevent it from being used as a weapon of oppression. Political correctness is meant to defend the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's a reminder for those straight white men, the people who have the most power, that the other people exist, that their feelings, their needs, their rights also matter and should be protected and upheld. So political correctness as an idea sort of gained traction in the 70s and 80s with, <laughs> again, went to college. <laughs> gained traction in the 70s and 80s, uh, somewhat alongside the feminist movement, um, and also as, as a society, as we were becoming more cognizant of our diversity, of our multiculturalism, and wanting to celebrate that more and more. And at the time, it became considered politically savvy to avoid shitting all over the feelings of a bunch of your fucking constituents. It seems fairly goddamn obvious. <laughs> and it's fucking awful that what a, a large number of politicians, particularly on the right, have decided now is politically savvy is in fact to not only shit on those constituents, but to just like grind them under their boot heel. We are giving voice to some of the worst, the cruelest, the most bigoted ideas that cross people's minds. These are ideas that we are exhuming after letting them collectively die. We let this shit die as a society. We said, no, no, it is time. It is time to let this go and to bury it. And now the conservative right in particular is exhuming that shit like fucking zombie ideas and sending it back out into the world to fucking taint all of the rest of us. Okay, look, I don't wanna take away your fucking free speech. Bitch, I use my free speech fucking relentlessly. <laughs> I am that person who shouts, fuck Trump! every time the goddamn national anthem ends. <laughs> I fucking cherish my right to free speech. And I don't want you never to be able to say anything that might ever cause someone to have a negative feeling. I don't want to turn the whole world into a safe space where no one might ever have to confront anything that ever causes them harm or pain. I goddamn nearly ended a relationship a few weeks ago over my choice to publish a piece of writing that my partner deemed harmful to someone. I think it is fucking important that we be able to talk about difficult, about hard, scary, heavy things. And I can't tell you whether it is worth talking about something even if it might hurt someone or cause someone pain. But maybe it is, sometimes it is. 
I don't want you not to be able to talk about dark, heavy things. I don't want you to be, not to be able to joke about dark, heavy things. For some people, that stuff isn't a laughing matter, and for other people, finding a way to laugh about the dark shit is a necessary coping mechanism. What I want when I say that I am in favor of political correctness is for you to treat your language, your speech, and your actions too with the weight that those things deserve. We all know, I guarantee you, that every single person in this room knows that the schoolyard adage about words can never hurt me is a goddamn lie. Words can hurt. Words can hurt deeply. Whether they are intentionally cruel or thoughtlessly cruel, words can hurt you. Free speech shouldn't mean that you just get to run around willy-nilly saying any fucking stupid thing that you want to say without fear of any consequences. The only thing it means is that the government doesn't get to come clap you in irons for doing it. Your stupidity, your being an asshole isn't criminal. But you're still an asshole. <laughs> And the people around you, your friends, your partners, your employees, your employers, those people all have the right themselves and can and should make decisions about whether they want to continue associating with you if you're going to run around being an asshole. David's right that language and the way we talk about things evolves. It has always evolved. It will continue to evolve. It evolves in a way that tends to reflect the ideas and the ideals of society. This isn't, political correctness is a relatively new phrase within the last century. But it is not fucking new to humanity and to spoken language, the idea, the core idea of language evolving and the way we talk about things evolving as our ideas and our ideals change. That's not new. It's not just because the feminists showed up and started causing trouble for the men. <laughs> and at this point, when people say political correctness, Mostly what they mean is just like fucking basic decency to other people. We rebranded it so that it's like easier to just brush off, oh, you know what? I really like being an asshole. That's what I hear most of the time when people rail against political correctness. Fine, man, congratulations. You have the legal right to be an asshole. I don't want to take away your legal right to be an asshole. In fact, you having the legal right to be an asshole and you're choosing to exercise it tells me everything I need to know about whether I want to associate with you or not. So great, by all means, if you would like to continue being an asshole, please do. But what I want as a society is for us to be better. Because I want to live in a society where we care about the feelings of people who are not straight white men. I want to live in a society where 
We treat everyone with some basic fucking decency, regardless of the color of their skin, or who they love, or how much money they make, or the configuration of their genitals, or any other fucking stupid thing. Everyone in this room is a human who is worthy of some kind of fucking decency from every other human in this room. So if your unmitigated right to be an asshole is more important to you than whether your words teach other people to treat people as less than you, as less valuable, as less worthy of decency, because they look different, or because they live differently than you do, or they love differently, then I think you probably fucking deserve to be a social pariah. If your words cause harm, or your actions cause harm, if the way that you interact with other people causes harm to some innocent bystander by making them feel unwelcome in the place that they call home, by making them believe that they have less value than you do because of the color of their skin or the god that they worship, then I hope that the other people around you will turn their backs on you. Because language and ideas that contribute to the cultural exclusion and marginalization of specific, usually already disadvantaged groups of people are at odds with a diverse multicultural society. And I don't know about you, but I want to live in a diverse multicultural society. I look out at this room and I see a diverse multicultural society. Political correctness isn't about suppressing all dissenting ideas. It just means denormalizing the shitty, harmful ones. And part of the way that we do that is by denormalizing the language that props up those shitty, harmful ideas. So if your idea or your precious fucking words wind up on the chopping block because of political correctness, like maybe they were shitty to begin with. Not all ideas are born equal. Not all language is born equal. The idea that every dumb fuck idea that you might ever have deserves equal time and equal consideration in the public discourse is the death of critical thinking. Fuck it, I don't need it. Let's see. Uh, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end on this. I think it would be remiss for me to not very briefly my time back. Oh, I'm way over time. Oh, yeah. All right, fuck it. I'm going to end. Um, did I lose my ending? <laughs> oh, thank you. So polite. All right, so the point is that as a society, political correctness is about progress, it's about us being better and doing better by the people in our society who do not hold the majority of the power in it. And someday, I hope that all the fucking straight white men are gonna be really goddamn happy that the rest of us recognize the importance of political, of political correctness when they're no longer the majority. 
and the rest of us hold the power over them. You get the choice for all of us. You get to decide, is political correctness progressive, which would be Kerry, or regressive, which would be David? What is your call? I have the winner by a hair. Being politically correct, I didn't say the type of hair. All right. But for three reasons. Three reasons. I think the common ground is that politeness, context, identity and intention uh, are what distinguishes the argument. Uh -huh. And Himmel made the best argument yeah. on those four What? So you're giving it to David Himmel? Absolutely. Wow, okay, David Himmel wins. You won. You won, David Himmel. I, you know, and you know, and you know when the oligarchy makes a decision, America makes the same fucking sound. it was kind of a guarantee you were going to get a job. That was kind of the idea. That was the promise, that you would get a college degree and it would mean something other than crippling debt until you're 40. So the question at hand is the unnecessity of college. Is it a waste of money or is it essential to get along? We'll have John Capal and Paul Teodo. We'll be debating that. John Duvall's going to go second, so Paul Kyoto is going to go first. The unnecessity of college. Is it a waste of time or is it essential? Ladies and gentlemen, give a big hand to Paul Kyoto. <laughs> Let me start out by saying, Mr. Valente, I know you're an attorney. You're one of the most brilliant attorneys in Chicago. <laughs> I know you do all sorts of charitable work. I know you're a man of integrity, morals, high values, and good-looking, and of an Italian descent. And, and, and of Italian descent, did you hear that? A lot of vowels, your name, my name, okay? I am here tonight basically to share briefly with you how valuable a college education is. Now, I was considering asking a show of hands of people in the room who are college educated or who are on their way to becoming college educated versus those who are not. But since we had a lot of discussion about political correctness and incorrectness, those who are not college educated might feel compromised by that question. So I won't ask the question. But as I go through this presentation, if any of you don't quite understand what I'm saying, that would probably imply that you are not college educated. And one of the benefits of attending college is being able to comprehend complex thoughts, such as were presented by both David and, was it Carrie? Carrie. Carrie. So, I got out of my car tonight, and I was walking down the street thinking, what am I going to say? However, I did not even need to think of what I was going to say because a man approached me on the street. This man. 
And I said, are you college educated? And I think you know the answer, just take a look. Why I need a cold beer. Now again, as I was listening to the discussion about political correctness, I thought, showing you the picture I just took of this man who approached me on the street might be politically incorrect. But given the fact that this is a debate and I'm attempting to share with you my perspective, I'm assuming that you'll be able to understand this. As compared to the next person who I took a picture of, this person is college educated. Can you see the intensity in her eyes, the intelligence in her look, the way she is dressed, the way she is speaking to you, drawing you in with her intelligence. Now, I'm going to present a few facts tonight. These facts are true. These facts have been looked up on the internet and written <laughs> by people who are college educated. These facts are not fake facts. In fact, I conferred with a very, very intelligent person. In fact, one of the most intelligent people, if not the most intelligent and also the most fit person in the United States regarding these facts. And he shared with me that the facts that I'm about to explain to you, present to you, persuade to you are in fact true facts. This gentleman is my and your fact finder, okay? So, Get ready for some facts that will definitely help you understand why there is such a value in a college education. Okay, to start with, money. I know most of you who are liberal here say, ah, to hell with money. I only need a little bit to survive. Well, I'm gonna challenge you with a couple of ideas, if not facts. I propose to you that without people with college educations, you would not be here tonight. This building is approximately, what, 70, 80, 90 years old? 20 years ago, the first time I was in a debate at Bug House, the actual Washington Park, this neighborhood was, according to this man, a shithole, okay? And if it wasn't for college-educated people who gentrified this neighborhood, even though that was a topic of discussion at Bug House a couple months ago, we wouldn't be here. The buildings that are now lining the streets, going up all over the place, making Google and Apple and all the other folks move into this former shithole, this former Bowery, this former Skid Row, are college-educated people. Capitalists. And they're capitalists. <laughs> and they're maybe like him, but the reality is that these folks have done things that some people call progress, and some people call change, and some people call immoral and oppression. And you may not like the concept, but do you benefit from the actions? And if you do, do you feel guilty about it? And if you do, do you change your behavior? And I propose to you, most of you who feel that there is oppression and therefore change your behavior are oftentimes people with a college education.
Right now, in this country, at any given time, comparing two people of the same age, there's a $25,000 a year difference between a college-educated person and a non-college-educated person. If you run the numbers, 22-year-old, 43 years, working to the age of 65, you earn $1.1 million more than the non-college-educated person. Not 100% of the time, but on average. And if, in fact, you are interested in money, that in and of itself is an argument for a college education. And I deducted the approximate cost of college right now, which for a four-year state school is about $135,000, $140,000 over that four-year time, and a private school is about two and a quarter. The average college student graduates with $34,000 in debt, which seems extremely low to me. But $1.1 million compared to the $34,000, the $130,000, all the way up to two and a quarter. And we may not publicly say that we value money. We value the things that money sometimes buys. And we detest the things that sometimes money buys. But the fact of the matter is, those big screen TVs are on right now. We're sitting in a place where we're buying food with this stuff called money. And, and whatever he said, I, I probably don't disagree with. <laughs> college grads are much more happy overall than non-college grads, if anyone wants to make an argument for that. But let me show you this picture. See this guy? He graduated from Harvard. He's a medical genius. Nah, that's not really a true fact. But that's a happy person as compared to this person. Not too happy. That person did not go to college. Okay. Now, you may argue the point that money can't buy you happiness, college debt can't buy you happiness. I'm just telling you what research shows. That folks who go to college, graduate college, score higher. Why? Maybe because they're oppressed by assholes who go to college. <laughs> However, they are happier, according to statistical information provided by college grads. Okay, college grads are much more marketable and more insulated from recession. During the recession of 2010, non-grads lost their jobs at a 40% higher rate than grads. This person did not lose her job. See how happy she is? <laughs> These people are standing in line to get a job at McDonald's. Okay, as you can see, that's quite a line. Now, what I might be doing is politically incorrect. The reality is that if, in fact, it's so politically incorrect and college education is something that bugs people here at Bug House, then why so many of us went? and completed, or involved in. And some may say, we were forced to do it. We were shamed into doing it. You fucking did it. As Karen or Carrie said, it's a free country. You made the choice. And some people say, it's not a free country. Job security. If you're interested in a job being secure, college grads have more security. Some positions, 300% more job satisfaction and job happiness. 
Let me show you the next picture. Yeah. These people are truly happy. Just look at these people. You, you keep that image set because we're going to keep that one up longer than possibly any of the others. Okay. Another benefit. That's not PC. Another benefit of going to college is networking. Interviews have been done at prestigious institutions of undergrads and college professors who work as counselors with undergrads. And one of the biggest benefits of going to an institution of higher education is the networking, the people you meet for after you leave. This is Chicago. And I don't know if you're from Chicago, where you're from, whatever, I am from Chicago. That's why I said all the things about Tom before I started. <laughs> and whether you want to believe it, like it, or not, it oftentimes isn't what you know, it's who you know. Or you could say that differently, it's the meaningful relationships that you establish on your journey towards becoming a well-rounded individual. In fact, the longest and best study ever done on happiness was by Harvard. 75 years, people were interviewed over a period of 75 years. And the people who scored highest on happiness were people who developed what? Meaningful relationships. And you know what the second indicator was? People who could let go of their fucking resentments. Onward. Okay. All right. If you graduate from college, you are more likely to have benefits that are good for you and people who you care about, such as health benefits, pensions, all sorts of things like that. If you are interested in having kids, your kids tend to be higher level criminals than if they are not fathered or mothered by non-graduates. Your kids get in the type of trouble that tends to not be so much street-oriented, and therefore their prison sentences, if they get caught, or you don't think they are defensible, they would go to less secure prisons than if they were children of non-college educated. Overall social awareness keeps you from getting screwed. People are trying to screw you. I'm college educated, I know this. <laughs> they, they present to you things like guarantees, mortgages, law agreements, divorce decrees, all sorts of stuff like that. People who have attended college tend to read these things, understand these things more thoroughly, and get screwed less. <laughs> They don't not get screwed, they just get fucked less. <laughs> and probably in a different orifice. Okay, now, if you are a college graduate, the chances are you're relatively happy compared to a non-college graduate. This is just logic. If those facts are accurate, and we know they are because you saw who is the, the king of fact, I'll say it again. If you are a college graduate, there is a high likelihood that you are happier than a non-college graduate. 
Therefore, in all likelihood, you will be interested in continuing your life. Well, if in fact you are a college graduate, you live an average of nine years longer. Why? Because you tend to take care of yourself better. Some people may want to prove that wrong. You may be a college graduate. You may be here tonight. You may be pissed at what I'm saying, and you may go out and try to shorten your life to prove me wrong. That's up to you. You tend to eat better, sleep better, make better decisions, wear seatbelts, all sorts of shit like that. Okay. Now we're going to get into the other benefits of college that I couldn't find statistically significant. However, you fucking know what I'm talking about. Because most of you were in college, and you were in college for these reasons. Sex. These people are ready to achieve orgasm and ejaculate, okay? Now, just take a good look at them. You can tell they are ramped up. Their hormones are flowing. They're ready to rock and roll. Why? Because they are in college, okay? These two men. Hey. Do they look like they're ready to ejaculate? Someone went to college. Someone went to college. What do you mean? Rejection of Calvinism. Rejection of Calvinism. Okay. All right. I think she's fucking with me. What it really means is that you break away from your parents and move into adulthood. You scream in bars, political statements. You make your point publicly, and you don't feel bad that your mom and dad are going to come out and slap you in the face. Okay? You move away from home. College grads tend to move away from home in an environment that helps you learn how to have sex happily, like I just showed you. Learn how to drink appropriately. See? These people are drinking appropriately. Just like you in the back, right? And my hunch is most of you in the back went to college. You're fucking drinking appropriately. Now you're gonna go prove me wrong because you're gonna do this. Okay, now you can say, that fucker, look at him, I'm like this, he's wrong. But I'm not gonna take it any farther because I think you get my drift. Okay, parents get the opportunity to meet their moral obligations of basically bankrupting the household by sending you to college. And that's, I'm a parent. I paid for my son's two colleges. It was like four or five hundred thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. And I tell you what, I'd have fucking held up a bank to do it. 
drama. You would lose the opportunity to call home and bitch about your TV in your room breaking. And your parents going, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll get you a new one. Or the bar, you know, no longer keeping your beer cold. And then the last thing is college teaches you to lie better than when you're uneducated. <laughs> because you're chock full of facts, chock full of knowledge, and chock full of a vocabulary that is way fucking better than mine. Now, I come from a family, I'm 67 years old, I come from a family, I'm the first person, I was related to nobody who ever set foot in the college. My old man was illiterate and he worked in a factory. And I went to college. And I'd say the most important thing for me going to college was the relationships that I established that I still have. I met a guy in college in 1969, naked in a shower. <laughs> and he's here tonight, but I won't point him out, because that would be political correct. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you with this, but I'm going to show you this, and you make a judgment on this. A college education shows a man how little other people know. Or maybe it elevates your idea of how much you know. You know, I, I believe that the reason we're here tonight is because of a big problem. The problem that we have, and I think the real focus of this discussion, is whether or not college is a right or a privilege. Some days I say it's a right, other days I say it's a privilege. I know I was privileged that my old man and old lady worked their asses off to help me go to college because I am grateful that I went. I am grateful and I am fortunate. Thank you. Side. Ladies and gentlemen, John Kapal. Give me a hand. Is that high enough for you? All right, rock and roll. All right, three things before we actually begin. <clears throat> One, if you see the paper shaking, I'm just nervous. Second, if Paul ever says to you before about, oh, I really didn't, re didn't really prepare. He's fucking lying to you. <laughs> Third thing, I'm going to quote Rory Zacker. I should have fucking gone first. <clears throat> Someone posted a Tom Waits uh, meme recently, which said, the world is a hellish place, and bad writing is destroying the quality of our suffering. <laughs> We're going to come back to this. As usual, David and Don 
are asking the wrong question, is a college education a waste of time or essential? As if this is some sort of grand, timeless consideration. The correct question is, what's better for the world today? Pervasive wage servitude or the hard work of making your own way? Obviously the latter. In December 1978, when I was a freshman in high school, imagine this height, half the width. It's really a 28-inch waist. I knew exactly where I wanted to go to college, the University of Illinois in Champaign. I was one of those smart-ass nerds attending my first big state debate tournament being held at the historic Lincoln and Gregory Halls in the south end of the quad. I fell in love with the place, the majestic snow-covered size of the place. I could get lost here. I could invent a new me here. And I did every, and everything I did and didn't do from that point forward was about me getting the fuck out of the petty and parochial village of Grays Lake and getting to Champagne. All the part-time jobs, all the bullying, all the horseshit teachers, all the wanting to get on with my life, not smoking pot because a pot arrest would fuck up your admission, but drinking and puking old crow in early times and Southern Comfort was okay. Back in the early 80s, if you busted your ass working at Great America at the minimum wage of $3.35 an hour, you could easily squirrel away two to $3,000 a summer after taxes. It meant that I said yes to every shift assignment, every shift extension, every call-in. I spent two years in brown knickers at Blue Ribbon Barbecue across from the Demon Roller Coaster, one season at Pizza Orleans when The Edge debuted, and my last season on the third shift washdown crew at a much better hourly rate. Back then, two to three thousand dollars paid for two semesters of tuition and fees at Illinois with some left over for housing. I never had to take a student loan until the summer between my junior and senior year of college because I thought it would be a good idea to spend the summer in Washington, D.C. on an unpaid internship at the American Bar Association. For years in the early 2000s, the University of Illinois College of Liberal Arts and Sciences would invite me to participate in job fairs and panels uh, at the Illini Union. Before the internet really took off, all the lost what do I do now kids had their own copy of what color is your parachute. There was a fair amount of follow your passion and do what feels right and do what you love, the money will follow crap. I'm networking was the explanation for sitting around and whining with your friends in a coffee shop about how tough it was to find a job, but not actually doing anything to find and get a job. I told the soon-to-graduate liberal arts and sciences students, quote, with the exception of chemistry majors, no one had the subject matter expertise to step into a job and do that job. If you wanted more than an entry-level job, you need to go to grad school. The only thing an undergraduate degree granted was the ability to read, listen, research, examine, and analyze. If you're walking out of here without the ability to take copious notes, manage your time, handle your money, argue your position, stand up for yourself, and critically think, you got conned. You wasted your time. 
get your money back. Few of the college grads I've met have developed these skills, let alone mastered them. Surveys, polls, and studies support the persistent state of helpless mediocrity. Nowadays, they call taking care of business adulting, like it's something <laughs> exceptional. I think, I, I think I'll always be able to get a job because I can hustle, learn, adapt, improvise, and overcome, none of which I learned in college, but in the life before and after college. And guess what? It ain't 1986 anymore. Layer onto this ongoing, stagnant, personal approach to higher education is an economic sea change regarding how higher education is funded. I'd have to work five summers at minimum wage to pay for the tuition and fees for a single year of school now. Pell grants and scholarships are limited or gone altogether. The debt load these kids graduate with used to buy a three-bedroom house in the burbs in the 70s. And they remain confronted with poverty scale, entry-level jobs. What annual salary do you need to afford a one-bedroom apartment, have a decent life, and pay off your college loan by your 30th birthday, nine years? If you start off with $50,000 in debt, that's 64,000 to 5.7% interest or $7,116 a year. Good rule of thumb, you need to make at least your total debt in annual salary to pay it off in nine years. Before your rent, before you take a vacation, before you buy a car, before you buy a house, before you get married, before you get pregnant, you pay that loan. It's like that interactive touchscreen extinction exhibits you see at the Museum of Natural History. <laughs> Touch the screen and an algorithm plots which species lives and which dies. Predators and prey. Reproductive rates versus kill rates. People with money always crush people with debt. Unless you're lucky enough to touch the one pixel in a thousand where predators overconsume the prey, breed too slow, and inadvertently wipe themselves out. <laughs> Do you think it was an accident that the Republican 1% removed student loan debt from the bankruptcy discharge petitions a few years ago? Want to live? Stay out of the forest of debt. A college degree does not prevent you from being a dipshit or poor. <laughs> and not having a college degree doesn't mean you are a dipshit and poor. Now, you know, we're gonna go off script here for a moment. <laughs> Nowadays, non-college kids are financially better off than college kids. Paul's stat about the extra million dollars, that's the 95th percentile. That's not the middle of the bell curve. That's not where most of us live. That's at the high end of the bell curve. You get in the middle of the bell curve, almost shakes out even. Lifetimes may be lower at the end of life, but again, you don't have to pay a huge chunk of those earnings to, bank, uh, to a bank to dig themselves out of a five or six figure hole. 
A house mortgage is an encumbered asset that earns value. What's the return on investment on a college degree? Any inferiority a non-college person feels is just some dog shit in a plastic baggie that you decided to carry around. No one needs, no one needs a college education to read, write, think, learn, debate, and create. You just need the drive and determination to step into the fray, to be wrong, to make mistakes, to get lost, to pick yourself up and start again. If you have the drive and determination to go to college and do well, you probably don't need college. <laughs> we'll skip the scores of examples that have done the same, but you can find them in, article, in articles titled 100 Top Entrepreneurs Who Succeeded Without College Degree, 10 Famous Founders Who Didn't Graduate From College, 15 Super Successful People Who Never Graduated From College. College teaches you that you cannot afford to make a mistake. Lift up your head or jeopardize your grade point average or your credit rating or invest in yourself. It teaches fear, confinement, and how to cheat yourself out of life. There's no ROI that justifies involuntary servitude. Live a life of learning. Live a life worth sharing. Never stop discovering and exploring yourself and traveling the world. Education just doesn't happen during a certain window of time. Back to Tom Waits with an edit. The world is a hellish place, and bad debt, foolish decisions, following someone else's script, and abject cowardice are destroying the quality of our suffering. John Who wins the debate? Probably the most important one, because we can all go, yes, we're intellectual. Most of us are liberal-minded. We're academic of some sort. But really what matters to us is whether we're getting laid. We know that. We don't want to say it because, oh, it's politically incorrect, but that's the deal. So the question at hand is modern dating. Is it better to meet up in real life or match.com? And that will be debated by Jillian Hemi. Jillian, would you like Barks. to go first or second? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. She's going to go first. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, modern dating. Jillian Hemi, give her a hand. to be with you tonight. I'm also very happy that my dad is here to hear me talk about dating. And, um, well, okay, because you see, I went to a Catholic school, and in third grade, they told us what sex was. And my dad realized they told us that, and he said to me, just tell me, you know, if you ever have any questions. And I thought, at last, tonight, we have a segue. 
Shakespeare's As You Like It. When you fall in love, it is a temporary madness. It erupts like an earthquake. Louis de Bernier, Captain Corelli's mandolin. I'll love you with all the madness in my soul. Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. <laughs> as these fine examples of Western art show, the idea of love as a form of madness is nothing new. Julian Fellows, creator of Downton Abbey, brings lust into the conversation as well. Lust, that state commonly known as being in love, is a kind of madness. It is a distortion of reality so remarkable that it should, by right, enable most of us to understand the other forms of lunacy. Paradoxically, few of us are glad when we feel that slip of passion. Dis despite the agony, most people have been at their unhappiest while in love, and yet it is the state the human being yearns for above all. Why? Why? Why, 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 why do we put ourselves through that agony? Helen Fisher is a human behavior researcher specializing in the biology of love and attraction. She's a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and she's the chief scientific advisor for Match.com. Helen Fisher argues that human beings do have a deep-seated orientation towards lust. But what actually drives us to the point of madness is our desperate urge to be loved, to be accepted, to find and identify someone to love us. Romantic love is a euphoric madness that, given the, ch the chance, can give way to companionship. And, and not only is this soul-deep stuff, it's cellular. High stakes. With, with something so essential, so potentially all-consuming, shouldn't we prime ourselves for success through preparation? <laughs> there is always some madness in love, but there is also always some reason in madness, Nietzsche. So let's find the reason. Fisher has found the reason. She has spent the last 15 years looking at MRI scans of adults in various stages of infatuation. And her research drives all of her hypotheses about love, and these hypotheses actually form the very infrastructure of Match.com, science. Let's take advantage of the reason offered by structures like the one Helen Fisher has built. Let's go online. Since Match.com launched in 1995, we've, we've seen an advent of other platforms, right? OkCupid, okay, Grindr, Tinder, or Timber. Tinder's counterpart if you're one of the four people who has a Windows phone, as I found out a couple years ago. <laughs> eHarmony, Coffee Meets Bagel, Plenty of Fish, J-Date, Hinge. And I actually prefer to think of these dating services as introducing services. They allow us to navigate the preamble to a date. And then when we do meet, we turn everything over to our ancient mammalian brain anyhow. Just like we would if we hadn't met online, but rather had a meet cute in our Upper West Side Children's Bookstore. <laughs> You've got me. <laughs> These introducing services get us to the date, to the same potential for euphoria. They just get us there with more power and more information. 
So let's take a look at how Match.com informs and empowers us, shall we? What? The internet swoops in where, our, where changes to our community structure have left us hanging. Right? We've lost our sense of local community. People for millions of years went into relationships, even went into their first date, knowing a good deal about the human being that they're dating because of connections in their local community. And now we somehow think that it's natural to walk into a bar and meet someone and, and know nothing about them, and unnatural to go to a dating site when really it's the reverse. Online dating takes the baton from our ancient ancestors who knew someone, who knew someone, who knew the aunt of the person we laid eyes on over across the, at the watering hole. Two, clarity of intention. When we meet people online, right, each party has the opportunity to express their clear and purposeful intention to date, or to hook up, or to seek a life partner. They're not looking for friends, really. In one form or another, they are seeking the madness of lust and or love, and they have the opportunity to fine tune the articulation of their goals. You can feel pretty confident that the majority of these profiles were all from people who are looking for a partner. Whereas in a bar, there's no way to know what people's intentions are, right? I mean, as Paul said, people are trying to screw you. <laughs> and you know, in fact, meeting people in real life can lead to all sorts of trouble. Now, Dad, this is just hypothetical, but you might end up dating a homeless actor twice your age, hypothetically. I don't, you don't know. Three, inclusivity and empowerment. We may not all live in a town or city or community that respects our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our kinks. When we move outside of our immediate surroundings and onto the internet, we can gain greater access to the kind of national and global communities that welcome us to freely express ourselves in the realm of love and attachment. We all deserve the opportunity to freely celebrate how and whom we love and to be in contact with those who want to join in our celebration. And then, if we go back to Helen Fisher for a second, she's really into our hunter-gatherer roots. So we can take a quick look at how women's roles have changed. Uh, in an interview with Ben Dickinson, come on, Helen Fisher explained, for roughly 10,000 years, the structure of our agrarian societies meant that we prioritized property, right? And then women were kind of lumped in with that. They were seen as chattel, really. And so because marriage had this ownership connotation, marriage bonds were unbreakable. You didn't want to give away your stuff. But we've moved off to the farm. We're actually returning to the more informal mating style of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, serial pair bonding, right? We have this opportunity to seek out slow love. We can try out different partners. Online dating helps us embrace this freedom by allowing us to get to know multiple diverse potential partners. And now, instead of being the beginning of this societal obligation, marriage can be the end of a search for real love. But you don't have to get married. We can also empower ourselves to be the best possible partner for someone. I mean, how beautifully generous is it to take a risk, to take the time to figure out your shit and then make a profile, be vulnerable, say, I'm looking for someone. 
For you learn about yourself. Whatever the outcome is, if it's dating, love, romance, marriage, partnership, parenthood, polyamory, a lifelong commitment to yourself, whatever happens, online dating gives you an opportunity to take stock of yourself, to consider what you want, to define your priorities. And at the end of the day, online dating is an imaginative exercise. It's an opportunity for you to try on what is possible for yourself and for your future, with a partner or without. Will Joanne from DeKalb help me to tell the story of my life? Will Kevin from Pilsen? I don't know. But whatever my future love life may look like, I will be best served by an examined self. So, go ahead, swipe, click, try. Understand yourself, empower yourself, love yourself, and maybe even someone else too. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Zach Bartz. Give him a hand. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So it is important to meet up with somebody that you're going to go out and date because you need to get some answers to a lot of questions. First and foremost, do they have a face tattoo? <laughs> Just get it out of the way. Does the person smell? Is this person nice to the wait staff? By the way, tip your waitress tonight. Uh, does this person wear a graphic t-shirt? <laughs> does this person quote Will Ferrell movies? Do they use a ringtone that they paid for? <laughs> Do they hum? Anytime. Are they ever humming? Do they have bad teeth? Which is fine, but if they do, like, what is their plan? <laughs> do they pronounce it washing machine? <laughs> Are they wearing any clothes from Hollister? <laughs> is their thumb a big toe? Which, like, if, if that happened, we don't need to talk about it, but I should know that I'm going to find a big toe on your hand. Do they sneeze in multiples? Like anything more than three is just gonna be annoying. <laughs> and when you sneeze, do they say bless you? Are they wearing a Lollapalooza wristband? <laughs> Are they wearing a Livestrong wristband? Are they wearing Ed Hardy anywhere? Are they wearing a class ring? How about a wedding ring? That's a big one. <laughs> Do they clap when a movie starts? Are they wearing puka shells? Do they do cocaine? Do they share cocaine? Would they start a bar fight? And could they end a bar fight? Do they keep their headphones in? when you're talking to them. 
Do they keep talking about their improv class? Or their horoscope, they're both bad. Are they wearing a disposable poncho? Just buy an umbrella, you can use it again. Do they wink? Are they wearing Crocs? Are they wearing an amulet? Is that amulet cursed? Do they have an eyebrow ring? Is that eyebrow ring cursed? Are they wearing a fedora? That fedora is cursed. Sorry, dude. They are all cursed. Do they order Leinenkugels? Do they have a couple flasks? Are they wearing Hawaiian shirts or pants or both? Are they wearing a big dog shirt or a no fear shirt or no shirt at all? Do they have a Bluetooth headset? Are they wearing sunglasses inside? Do they have a man bun? Are they eating sunflower seeds? Do they wear jean shorts? Do they have a Tamagotchi? And if they do, how well do they take care of their Tamagotchi? You can learn a lot about how someone treats a relationship by how they treat their Tamagotchi. Do they have a money clip? Do they Instagram their food? Do they wear leggings as pants? Do they have transition lenses on their glasses? Do they put their sunglasses backwards on their head? Are they wearing Disney clothes? But if they are, they have kids, or they're just really fucking weird. Do they have a studded belt? Do they drink Malort? Do they drink Malort on the rocks? Do they have an emotional support peacock? Are they a furry? Do they have a car? Do they have any Transformers memorabilia on that car? And even if it's a yellow Camaro, that's very lame. Do they listen to Enya? Do they have a reusable straw? Do they play Pokemon Go? Do they talk to people's dogs? Do they wear driving gloves? Do they carry a kerchief? Do they pronounce it Katza? Do they own a CBGB shirt? Do they call California Cali? Related, do they vape? Do they go to fish concerts? Do they microwave fish? Do they aggressively use hand sanitizer? Do they wear Under Armour as a shirt? Do they say the word baller? Do they have a PlayStation 2? Do they have a Segway? Both of them outdated. Get something else. Do they eat butterscotch candies? Do they order their steak well done? 
Do they use the phrase, at the end of the day? Do they take their hat off and then tuck it into the back of their pants? Do they karaoke Sweet Caroline? And the most important, did they show up for the date? Thank you. but I just want to say that uh, it's rare that I have been completely convinced by one argument and laughed so fucking hard I think I went blind in one of my eyes in the second one. <laughs> so I just want to point that out. Um, so, Tom Valenti. That's the problem I'm having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. I, I'm, I'm in pain. I've laughed so, just so hard. Just I'm going to go with convinced. Not almost what my Jillian Hemi wins the match. We hope that if you enjoyed Bug House, that you would tell other people about Bug House, because that's ultimately the only way people come to see shows, is that you tell them that you saw a show and you thought it was kick-ass. Number two, Please tip your waitstaff because your appreciation doesn't pay their fucking rent. And with that in mind, also, if you get a chance, go to literateape.com, read the blog, check out stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a great evening.